Today's scripture reading is Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight is our time as a church. Once a month, we gather at 6 o'clock to pray together and to seek God's face for the needs in our body. We're entering into a significant season in the life of the church calendar, which is Easter. This is the time of year that if you were going to invite someone to church, this is the time to do it. People are inclined to say yes this time of year. And so um, we're going to pray about our evangelistic fervor tonight. And so if you have unsaved family members or a lost son or daughter, I want you to come and let's pray together and seek the Lord's face. We'll also be welcoming in some new members and praying over them. Really significant time uh, for us to be together. So if you're, if you're new and you want to get connected, you don't know how, 6 o'clock, that's how. It's come and you'll be prayed for. You'll meet some people and then we'll have a fellowship afterwards for our new members and the time just to be able to hang out together. Also at 5 o'clock, if you have a more personal matter that you'd like to have prayer for in our prayer room, uh, Pastor Don, myself, and our wives will be there. We'd love to pray for you individually prior to that service. So hope you can come tonight. Romans 9, 14 to 18. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there are passages in the Bible that are given to us for our help and our admonition, and there are others that are helpful in that they humble us and Such is the case with this text today. So I pray for grace. I pray for grace for a people who I love, and I want to have them understand what I think you're saying here. And Lord, I need grace to be able to make it clear and evident and plain. It's a complicated passage, and I I just want your glory and your name to be seen for what it really is. And so... Help us to worship today as we listen and as we read, as we see words on a page. Help our hearts just to be lifted into beautiful places of worship as we consider who and what you are. So help us now. Help me and help us as a people as we listen. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some truths in the Bible that are frankly, a little hard to reconcile. When, when you look at them and you read particular truths in the Bible, they seem like they're just absolutely incompatible. They aren't incompatible, but they look that way. And these truths in the Scriptures are both true, but somehow they, they don't seem, from our perspective, how they work together. I remember growing up, I heard my pastor one time describe these kind of truths like a, like a train track. And let me show you an image. There, there are two rails that are parallel, and they always remain parallel. But when you look into the future, if you look forward, it looks, it appears with your eyes as though those tracks cross one another, as though they intersect. 
as though they somehow violate their, their parallel qualities when they really don't. And my pastor growing up explained to me that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are these two rails that from our vantage point look like they cross, like they collide and they intersect when in fact they, they don't. And what we're talking about today essentially are two very important ideas in the Bible. On the one hand, we have this idea of human responsibility, this call to believe, this call for you today to choose Christ, to receive him, to confess with your mouth. And on the other hand, we have this divine sovereignty thing, this this reality that God chooses us. And there are these two paths in the scriptures that are both clearly taught. And today we're going to focus on one particular rail, and that is the idea of God's sovereignty in salvation. Or as my title this morning bears witness, there's a really important question that we're dealing with, and it's this, is election unfair? And by election, I mean, is it unfair that God chooses people to receive him as Savior through His Son. We have God's sovereignty on the one hand. We have justice or fairness on the other. J.I. Packer, in his wonderful little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, calls this tension between these two things an antinomy. And by that he means things that appear in the Bible to be contradictions but yet are both true and logical and reasonable. Here's a quote from his book. An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. There are cogent reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on a clear and solid evidence, but is a mystery to you how they can be squared with each other. You see that each must be true on its own, but you do not see how they can be true together. And that's what we're dealing with today. It's important to keep this in mind, because there are two truths, human responsibility and divine sovereignty, but today we're going to primarily focus on one rail, and that that rail being divine sovereignty. So you need to keep not only Romans 9 in view... But you also need to keep Romans 10 in view, because Romans 10 will say things like this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what I want you to do is I want you to stick with me as we walk through this text and as well next week. If you can, stick with me for nine weeks. Don't give up on me, please, until the end. You can give up on me on the end. I want you to find out what this text is saying in its totality, not just in its individual sermons. We need Romans 9 to understand Romans 8, but we also need Romans 10 and Romans 11 to understand Romans 9 and Romans 8. So we need the whole picture. Let me review where we were last week. Last week we talked about Israel's unbelief. If you weren't here last week, or if you forgot last week... The the idea that Paul is addressing is the problem of the fact that Israel, as a nation, rejected, killed their Messiah. And God had made stunning promises about Israel's future, that she would be gloriously spiritual, she would embrace the Messiah, that she'd be a light to the nations, and none of that happened. 
So Paul makes unbelievable statements in Romans 8 about that God is for us and not against us, and that those he justified, he also glorified. And the question is, wait a minute, if you're making these huge promises in Romans 8, but Israel hasn't made good on the promises that God had made over her, then how can we know that Romans 8 is really true if the promises to Israel haven't come true? Great question. And Paul's answer to that in the first part of Romans 9 is this, that not all Israel is Israel. Meaning that even within the nation that has rejected their Savior, there are still individual Israelites who receive Christ as their Savior, the Apostle Paul being one of them. So there is an Israel within Israel, and for that matter, Romans 11 tells us that one day all Israel will be saved. And Paul's argument for the preservation of God's promises in the midst of a overall rejection by Israel is this, that there are people within Israel who God has chosen. That's the word election. There are those that God has chosen irrespective of anything good or evil in them. So underneath the promises of God is the doctrine of election, and now we're getting even below the doctrine of election with what we're dealing with today. The critical text last week was verse 10 and 11. It says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And what that meant is this, that Jacob and Esau were within the womb of Rebekah, and while they were still in the womb, before they had done anything, good or evil, God set his love on Jacob and not on Esau. And so God set his love on Jacob before Jacob had any thought of him, before Jacob had done anything good or or wrong, before Esau had done anything good or wrong. And that God's promises were applied to Jacob, not in respect to what he had done or who he is. Now, if you're reading Romans 9 correctly, and if you're hearing what I'm saying correctly, there has to be a question that then is raised. And the question is the title of the sermon. So how is that fair? How is it fair that God chooses Jacob and not Esau? So verse 14, we find the objection. And the objection is this, is there injustice on God's part? Verse 14, Paul uses another question and answer format. What shall we say then, is there injustice on God's part? The reason that this charge of injustice has come up is because God, according to verses 10 and 11, chooses certain people, he elects individuals based upon nothing in and of that person themselves. And and this idea that God would do this challenges some very fundamental human assumptions about what we understand to be fair and what is right and wrong. I mean, it would be one thing. It would be one thing for God to choose Jacob and not Esau after they were born or at least after you could see which way they were going. So God, you could then say God chose Jacob because clearly he was on the right path. Or maybe it would be another thing to say that God knows everything, and because he knew what Jacob would choose, or because he knew what Esau would choose, therefore God set his love on Jacob because he knew what they would choose, 
And so that's how God set his love on them. Or Paul could have used the example of David and Saul. He could have said that David was a man after God's own heart. And so that's why he set his affection on David and not on Saul. But the problem is is that Paul doesn't do that. And for that matter, God doesn't do that. So you need to know that fairness and justice are very good and very biblical ideas. I'm not saying that fairness isn't important or that justice isn't important, but what I am going to argue is that they aren't ultimate in the way that we define them. Like the railroad tracks. Our perception of reality isn't reality. Or maybe this illustration will help you even further. So every parent who's raised children knows the battle that happens when you have to put children to bed, especially when they go to bed at different times. And oh, a younger child will cry foul, unfairness, when they ask, I have to go to bed at 8.30? Yes. Well, what about my brothers? What time are they going to go to bed? Well, they're going to go to bed at 10.30. Well, what time are you and mom going to go to bed? We're going to go to bed at 2 in the morning. (laughs) We're going to go to bed whenever we want, right? And the child goes, well, how is that fair, right? And the answer is, it's fair. Because I'm a parent. That's why, right? And in an eight-year-old's mind, that, that isn't fair. Not thinking about the health, the wellness, the tiredness, the grumpiness. All that they see in their, in their orbit, in their world, in their system is, i got to go to bed now, and everyone else gets to stay awake, and that is just fundamentally unfair. Is it unfair from their perspective? Absolutely. Is it actually unfair? No. There's another aspect of fairness that's in place. So keep that in mind. As we walk through this passage, because I think it's helpful, fairness is appropriately built into our humanity. The problem is, is that our definition is too small. So, how can God choose people apart from anything in them? Does that make God unjust? Paul unequivocally answers, by no means or no way. And what he does is he gives three answers to this objection of injustice. I want to show you this in the text. There's a pattern that emerges. Verses 15 and 16 is one grouping, and verses 17 and 18 is the second grouping. Verse 15 and verse 17 both start with the word for. For he says, for the scripture says. In both cases, with two distinct points, Paul is quoting an Old Testament reference. And then verse 16 and 18 begins with the words, so then. Verse 18, so then. And that represents the conclusion or the summary or the reason why Paul quoted an Old Testament passage. So we have an Old Testament quotation and then a summary, two points. Verse 15 and 16, verses 17 and 18. What are those points? Here's the first one. And Paul's argument is there's no injustice because God is free to be merciful. And the most important word in that sentence is the word free. He is free to be merciful. Verse 15 says this, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what's the point? What is Paul saying here? Let me tell you what he's saying, and then I'll try to prove it. 
He's saying that God is free to be merciful to whomever and whenever he chooses. And that this freedom to be merciful, apart from any conditions outside of himself, is the essence of what it means for God to be God. There is no other controlling force or governing law or principle informing God's decision to be merciful other than God's rule over the created order. So God's ability to be God means that he is fundamentally free, and he is free in ways that you and I cannot even fully comprehend. Now to make that point clear, Paul quotes Exodus 33:19. That's the text in verse 15 where it says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now that's kind of a strange thing to say, Because that particular quotation doesn't feel like it proves anything. It's just a restatement of what he has said previously. He just says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, at first you might think, well, this this verse is just an affirmation or a restatement of God's mercy and his kindness. And it is, for sure, a restatement of his mercy and kindness at one level. But the passage is much, much more. What Exodus 33 is about, it is about not God's ability to be merciful, but his freedom to be merciful. That he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. So it's not about his ability to be merciful. It's about his freedom to be merciful. Now, why does he quote Exodus 33? Take your Bible. Let's go over to that section. Exodus 33. This particular citation is in the context of a dark moment in Israel's history. Exodus 32 is the record of the worship of the golden calf. It is a dark moment when Israel, after Moses was gone on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, they create their own God, this golden calf, and they begin to worship it. Moses comes down the mountain. He sees what's happening. He breaks the Ten Commandments. There's great judgment that happens over the uh, the people. And God, in effect, says to Moses, go ahead and go into the land of Canaan, but I'm not going with you because he says this people are a stiff necked people. In other words, despite everything that God has done for them, despite everything that they have seen their pattern over and over and over again, it just takes a little bit of time until they end up abandoning the one true God. And so God says to Moses, you go ahead and go into the promised land, but I'm not going. And Exodus 33 is Moses pleading with God to stay with his people because Moses knows that if God isn't going, it's over. It's over. I mean, God delivered them from Egypt. God parted the Red Sea. If God doesn't go, then there's no point to being the people of God anymore. So Moses appeals that God would go with his people. And in verse 14 of Exodus 33, God says to Moses, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses, verse 15, said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, meaning God going with us, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So God affirms, I'm going to go with the people of Israel. 
And then verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Why did he ask to see God's glory? Why ask to see his glory? Here's why. Because Moses knows full well that the assurance that God will stay with his people is not based upon the faithfulness of Israel. He has lived with these people. He knows them. There's no disagreeing that they are a stiff-necked people. He wants to see the glory of God because it is the glory of God that is the only assurance that God will be true to his word. So what's happening in the context of when we see this quotation in Romans 9 is that Moses is asking for the assurance that God will be true to his name and true to his word. And so then verse 19, God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So notice the glory of the Lord is connected to the name of the Lord. And then we find the exact statement that is found in Romans 9. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. When God says that, He is in effect saying His name. My name is the Lord. My glory is my name. And what is his name? His name is not only the Lord or Yahweh. His name is, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, that statement about the mercy and the grace of God is not just a restatement about what God can do. It is a statement about who God is. That's the point. That's why Moses, that's why Moses is given this this word from the Lord, not only about his glory, but about his essence of his character. And that is why Paul appeals to it in Romans chapter 9. God promises to proclaim his name. And his name is the expression of his character. And so this statement, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, is an expression of the very name and the character of God. So that God's promises then are rooted in who he is and in the freedom that is central to his sovereignty. So for Paul to quote this text is in effect to give evidence that God is free and his freedom is expressed in having mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy and having compassion on whomever he wants to have compassion. The freedom for God to be merciful at his choosing and irrespective of people's worth, their value, or what they have done is central to who he is as God. That's what's going on in this passage. God is free to be merciful because he is who he is. You see, what happens here, friends, is that Romans 9 is changing our definition of fairness. Go back to Romans 9 and verse 16. After quoting this Exodus 33 text, Paul then says this, So then, so then, in light of what we just Quoted, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So this text tells us that God's mercy is not dependent upon human will. It's not dependent upon your will or your free will or what you will decide. And for that matter, it's not dependent upon your exertion or what you will do. 
But the text says, but it is dependent upon God. So underneath the promises of God, underneath the promise of God is divine election, and underneath divine election is God's freedom to be God and to do what He wants to do because He is God, irrespective of any other condition or any other power or any other reality. And Look, what happens here is this challenges some assumptions that we have as human beings as to what is foundational in the universe. We understandably and at one level rightly think that the foundation of everything is justice. There's right and there's wrong. And what this text does is it goes underneath that and shows us there's actually something underneath it that God's sovereign freedom is fair and it is just, but it's fair and just in ways that we will never fully comprehend because we are not God. The problem, friends, is with our perspective. And we bring a perspective to this text. It's the perspective that's off with an eight-year-old who... It's totally unfair that my brothers get to go to bed later than I do. Or, I think I've used this illustration before, a couple months ago I came home, um, called my wife on the way home after church, and said, hey, let's, let's just go out, you and me, to El Rodeo. So we went out to El Rodeo, we had a great lunch together. Came home, walked in the door, the kids were like, where have you been? I'm like, well, we went to El Rodeo. And they're like, that's not fair! I'm like, what do you mean it's not fair? You went to a, a restaurant without us? And I wanted to remind them, you live in a house that I paid for. You have clothes that I bought. There's food in the refrigerator you had nothing to do with. There is nothing about your life that is unfair that I go to El Rodeo with your mother. But I didn't say that. I, I thought it. I didn't say it. Because it wouldn't have been helpful. They just wanted chips and salsa. (laughs) The issue is perspective. So remember, remember who you are in this passage. You're the kid sitting on the couch going, how's that fair? You're the eight-year-old going, it's not fair that I have to go to bed on time. What, From your perspective, I, I understand it doesn't seem fair, but there's a fairness that's beyond the fairness of what you see. Now here's the second thing. And this is even more challenging. God isn't just free to be merciful. He's, he's free to harden. So God is free to be merciful based upon who he is. But verses 17 and 18 push that even further, that God is so free that he's also free to harden whomever he wills. This is challenging because it's one thing to say that God is merciful to some But there's an implication of this that he's not then merciful to others. So what do we do with this? Well, once again, Paul turns to the Old Testament. Verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he uses the example of Pharaoh from Exodus chapter 9. Now you need to know that the book of Exodus records that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's, there, both happens. But in Romans 9, Paul is only talking about the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
It's a direct quote of Exodus 9.16, where Moses is delivering a message to Pharaoh after the plague of the boils and before the seventh plague of hail. It's one of the few places where God explains his purposes behind his actions, where he tells Moses what he is doing and why. You need to know that according to Exodus 9, God raised Pharaoh up in order to show the world his power. You need to know, or hopefully remember, that the story of Exodus is not just the story of the deliverance of Israel. It's not about Egypt and it's not about Pharaoh. The story of Exodus is about God about his supremacy over all so-called gods, that there's nobody who can stand in his way, and anybody who claims to hold his people will be devastated by their own God. So the story of Exodus is the story of God being exalted by the deliverance of his people and the judgment on the Egyptians. Exodus 6 says this, I will... I am the Lord your God. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. In other words, God's mercy assumes that there's also judgment. You can't have mercy if there is no judgment. So you have to have both. And from the very beginning of Exodus, God had told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 4.21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So in Romans 9.17 says this, For this purpose I raised you, this is Pharaoh, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What he's saying here is this, that God raised Pharaoh up for the purpose of displaying his power and showing the world his name. So it's not that God's defeat of Pharaoh is a greater power who conquers another power of whom they are both equal. It's not as though two generals met in a valley and the one with the greater army won like god is a little more powerful than pharaoh and that's how he beat him the point of romans 9 and exodus chapter 9 is this that the categories that god has available to him in terms of who he is are so different and unbelievably powerful that pharaoh and god are not even in the same class of beings in the universe that's the point It's not just that God is more powerful than Pharaoh. It is that God has power that blows the mind in comparison to who and what Pharaoh is. God's supremacy, his freedom, his power, they are otherworldly. God did not just defeat Pharaoh. He raised him up and showed his power through him so that all the nations would know who God is. That's the point. The key to understanding all of this is that phrase that i might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth this is the same rationale as it relates to mercy namely that the foundation of the universe is not fairness or it's not justice as we would define it the foundational reality of the universe and the ultimate justification for what god does is the display of his name In other words, when you boil everything down in the world or in the universe, the center of the center of everything is God and His glory, not fairness as we define it. 
when you get to that point and understand it and then you rebuild from there, it changes how you see chapters like Romans 9 and Romans 8 and Ephesians chapter 1. I wish that that statement, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. I I wish that that statement like buttoned everything up, but it doesn't, doesn't it? I mean, you, you read verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's not a text meant to go, okay. It's just not, what that does is it raises more questions. And, and more questions like verse 19, which we'll talk about next week. You will say to me, well, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Great question. Well, you gotta come back next week to figure out how to answer it. The point here is this, that there is no force, there is no person, there is no thing, there is no power in the universe that God is beholden to other than himself. And so once again, we come back to the statement that I have said here many, many times, the who question is far more foundational than the why question. What is true of suffering is also true in salvation. That the who question is more foundational than the why question. So God is free in his display of mercy. He's free in his display of hardness. And finally, third, he is also free in the fact that the display of God's glory and not fairness is the ultimate goal of the universe. Or maybe you could think of it this way. The display of God's glory is the ultimate standard for what is truly just or what is truly righteous. Because the words just and righteous go together. This is not a new statement. I've said this already in each of the two points, but you need to understand this. Otherwise, this text will not make sense. God's righteousness and His justice are directly connected to His glory. We'll talk about this more next week, but let me summarize it this way. God's righteousness is essentially His unswerving allegiance to His own name. His unswerving allegiance to His own glory. And the reason that is the case is because God is righteous to the degree to which He upholds the honor of His name. He is righteous when He values what is most valuable in all of the universe, and what is most valuable in all of the universe is His glory. So to make known His glory is to do the most righteous thing. So therefore, anything that reflects the glory of God, or makes known the glory of God, or gives evidence of the glory of God, that is the essence of righteousness, and anything that detracts from the glory of God is the essence of sin. You've heard this before. You probably just didn't see it this way. Look at Romans 3. Many of you know this text. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the what? Glory of God. What is sin? Sin is falling short of the glory of God. Why glory? Because glory is the center of the universe. That's why. It's the essence of everything. It's the foundation of the foundation of the foundation of the foundation. Fairness and righteousness, fairness and justice rather, they serve God's glory. God's glory doesn't serve rightness or wrongness or fairness. And then as well, look at verse 25. 
Or 24, we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And now notice how the language in Romans 9 parallels the Romans language in Romans 3. This was to show God's righteousness. God raised you up to show His power. God crucified Christ to show His righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So again, what does he say about Pharaoh? He says, for this reason, Romans 9, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name, namely my glory, might be proclaimed in all the earth. So the exaltation of Pharaoh, the hardening of Pharaoh, as it fits for the magnification of God's name and the display of his glory over all the earth, is absolutely righteous. And so therefore we can conclude, is election unfair? Absolutely not, because the center of the center of the center is the glory of God, and both mercy and hardness fit with the glory of God. That's what makes him God. And that's what makes election not unfair. So, what do we do with this? Now what? Some of you, you're internally conflicted. And I talked with some folks after the first service, and I, I get it. I've been there. I am there. You've never thought about God like this. And, and this is challenging some fundamental assumptions about who God is and who you are. And, and I know you still have many questions, but as I said earlier, stick with me. And remember, we got two tracks that are, 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 are clearly taught in the scriptures. And we have one that we're focusing on today. But we come, I think, naturally to a two-track viewpoint with a very small little one track when it comes to God's sovereignty. And it's actually much bigger than we ever imagined. And this rail is much more important than we ever knew. And Romans 9 gives us the clearest teaching on the beauty and the bigness of God's sovereign purposes. So pastorally, what are some things I want you to think about? Three. First, I want to remind you that the sovereignty of God is a great comfort The reason Paul talks about this is in order to comfort us in the midst of promises that don't seem to be fulfilled. So in the midst of all of the tensions and all of the challenges and all of the implications of this truth, remember that God is talking about this in order to reassure us that he rules over everything. I have a grave in Holland, Michigan with a little girl whose personality I never knew who I would love to hug and hold her at age 11. And my only answer as to why she is not alive is because God is God and I'm not. And I am painfully, joyfully embracing that reality. It's true in suffering. It's true in hardship. It's also true when it comes to salvation. It means that God in His grace wooed you to come to Himself The moment when you understood the gospel was God calling you, and there's an incredible comfort connected with that. And it also means that no matter what is happening in your life as a believer, that there is divine sovereignty that is ruling over all. And God's rule over your life didn't start when you came to Christ. His rule started before the foundations of the earth were even established. 
He is God, and He is ruler over all. And that is, friends, in the midst of all the tensions, an enormous comfort. Secondly, the sovereignty of God does not negate the call for you to believe. Don't you hear me say for a moment that if you're here, you should then say, well, I guess I don't have to believe then, since it's God who elects and God who chooses. No, Romans 10 says everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10 says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. So don't you for a moment think that you can't come to faith in Christ today and receive Jesus and confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In fact, if that is what you want to do, then you ought to because God is calling you and wooing you. And for that matter, it should never, ever, ever make you shirk back in your boldness in evangelism as of so some fatalistic mindset. Well, God's just going to take care of it all. He uses us. He wants us to proclaim the good news. And he also invites us to pray and to seek him and to ask him to help and to move and to do things that only he can do. God's sovereignty and our responsibility are both clearly taught in the Scriptures. They do not contradict one another. And so today you ought to come to faith in Christ if you don't know him. In fact, you're here today, not by accident, I would argue, by divine design. Third, Comfort, the call to believe. The sovereignty of God in election puts God in his place and it puts we in ours. Puts God in his place and it puts us in our place. This text is a reminder that there is nothing more glorious in all of the created order. There's nothing more glorious in all of the world, in all of the universe, than God's glory. It reminds us that God is big. He is beyond our ability to understand. And when it comes to who we are, we are so small, puny, little creatures. And God is so big and beyond our ability to even comprehend. And it is the glory of God that is the ultimate beautiful reality in the universe. And you know what sin is? Sin is treasuring anything above that glory. And my question would be this. How often this last week did you treasure something that's greater than God's glory? Where the enemy came along and said, you need to do this because this will be really satisfying. This will really make you happy. This will really meet all of your needs. The, the devil loves to throw temptations. The world system is built on that. Everything in the culture is just wooing us away from the beauty of the glory. And sin is saying, yeah, I'd rather have this than the glory of God. And it is a fool's errand. And it is a disastrous choice. And the call from this text today is remember the glory of God. It is what we were saved from. It is what we are saved to. From meaning out of what we are saved through by means of and to meaning who and what God is. And it is his glory that is to be our ultimate treasure. Can you imagine hearing a text like this and then standing up and saying, I'm awesome. (laughs) This text shows us how disgusting our pride is. You're going to boast in your career? 
You're going to boast in what you've done. You're going to boast in your abilities. You're going to boast in something that you have done when everything within you is dependent on the beauty and the glory of God and you'd have nothing apart from Him and His goodness. This text shows us the foolishness of our boasting and how ridiculous it is to make much of ourselves. Who are we kidding when we are in love with ourselves? Romans 9 gives us a big view of God. It challenges our understanding of ourselves. It it blows up our understanding of fairness. It, It alters our vision of who God really is. It's a text, church, that is meant to leave us stunned and humbled and awed. It's no wonder that Paul ends... In Romans 11, with, for who has known the mind of the Lord? (laughs) It's the answer, no one. Who has been his counselor? The answer is, no one. Who has given a gift to him that would be repaid? No one. Here's how Paul ends. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why to Him? Because His glory is the only thing that is worthy of that level of affirmation and adoration. Because at the end of the day, the center of the center of the center of the center of everything in the universe is the glory of God. Even election. And that is why it is not unfair. Because God is that glorious. He's God. And there's no one like him. Let's pray. I'm going to invite those who are part of our prayer team to come. Because there's some of you who, after we're done today, you need to have somebody pray for you about the tensions within your soul, the challenges of how to pray for a lost loved one. Some of you may need to come and just ask for someone to pray for you as you confess, if given into pride, lust, anger any kind of expression of self this week. Others of you may need to be reminded that no matter what you've done in your past, your sin is not the center of the universe. God's grace and His glory is. So Father, we pray now that You would humble us under the weight of this text. Forgive us for the trifling treatment of your glory and the ways in which we have treasured other things is more valuable than you. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers us from our sin. I pray today that there would be people born into your kingdom who this very day would say, God, I'm a sinner. Save me now, please. And God, thank you that the sustaining reality of your 
grace in our life is who you are, not who we are. And so we can die well and suffer joyfully and live righteously and never give up because you and your glory are sustaining it all. And so we commit this word from Romans 9 now to your safekeeping in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.